Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. So a key tenant of the enduring disorder is the idea that there are powers in the world who don't propose an alternative order. They are just happy to disorder the world. Qataris are the ones who are important in this conflict. They have the relationships with Iran, with Hamas, with the Taliban, with Russia, with the Ukrainians, and with Israel and with America and with NATO. They are the swing player. That's why all of the hostage releases, yes, there is some Egyptian role, but all the discussions are happening in Qatar. The Qataris are the ones delivering the hostages. Make no mistake about it. So what do I think is going to happen? I think that the war is going to restart and it's going to be horrible. It doesn't mean that it has to, though. It doesn't have to. My guest today is Jason Pack, who's an acclaimed author and Middle East expert. Jason is the author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, a seminal work that explores the intricate dynamics of post-Gaddafi Libya and its implications for the broader international system. He's also the host of the excellent Disorder podcast and a senior analyst for emerging challenges at the NATO College in Rome. With over two decades of research in the Middle East, Jason brings a unique perspective to understanding the complexities of the region's geopolitics, especially as it relates to the ongoing global challenges. This is Jason's second appearance on the show. We first spoke back in May of 22, in episode 55. That time, we explored Jason's excellent book and his concept of the global enduring disorder. You can find a link to that episode at the top of the show notes. Today, Jason joins me to discuss the recent escalation of violence in the Middle East, how it relates to the idea of the global enduring disorder, and what we might need to consider when looking for enduring and just uh, solutions in the region. Jason, welcome back to The Voices of War. It's nice to be back. I wish we could be chatting under better circumstances. Absolutely. And uh, I guess much like last time, uh, there's uh, more uh, disorder in the world. Um, and uh, many are paying the price for that disorder. Uh, but as I mentioned in the intro, uh, I will provide a link to our previous chat uh, where people can find out a bit more about you and a bit more detail about your background. But perhaps for those who have not come across your work previously, it might be useful uh, to just get a glimpse of your career. Sure. Uh, so how do you describe what you do? Sure. I wish my career had been less relevant to the situation we find <laughs> ourselves in, but it's even more relevant. I grew up in Manhattan, Maz, and I'm not Middle Eastern in any way, and I'd never been to the region. And I was studying science in Massachusetts, particularly biology. I thought I was going to become a doctor. Then this little mm. thing happened called the 9-11. And I felt that I should do something for my country. I probably would have joined the army if Gore had been president. And maybe I just say that now and I wouldn't have had the courage then. But I, I do believe that I would have done that. <laughs> I felt that I needed to do something to help my country, to help the West, to inform policy. 
And I thought, well, Israel has been done enough and, and people in New York in particular, they understand that. I moved to Beirut and mm. I was in Beirut. And then I had my Fulbright in Egypt that got transferred to Syria. And I stayed on. I lived in Syria for about two years. I got into graduate school in England. I realized I didn't want to be an academic. I got recruited to work in Libya. And for the last almost 15 years, I've been doing mostly Libya. Um, in between there, I ha did a master's in Jerusalem that I don't usually put on my resume. But since this conflict has been coming mm. out, I've been like releasing new facts about myself. So yeah, I studied in yeah, Jerusalem yeah. for two years. Um, my Hebrew is reasonably good. I can understand Israeli radio. I read the newspaper in Arabic. And I have to say, I'm one of the few people who can say that they've been in Gaza and Damascus and in Israeli kibbutzim. And I was in Southern Lebanon during the 2006 war. And I've also worked with the various Gulf states, such as the UAE mm. and Qatar, as it pertains to their destabilizing influences in the post-Arab Spring states like Libya and Egypt. So it kind of has all come together for me. I didn't train mm. for this moment, but in a way, a lot of what I've done in my career has given me some insights into this really broken moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's uh, perhaps also an explanation as to why your podcast has been doing so well, because some of the, uh, some of the episodes and, and excellent episodes, by the way, um, have really focused in on what's going on. Uh, so given your background, I'm not at all surprised uh, to hear that, uh, you know, you're featuring more prominently now, uh, uh, given what's going on uh, uh, in the region. But perhaps before we get into the region proper uh, that I really like to do, uh, it might be worthwhile also recapping for us, uh, for those who haven't come across the term before, what you mean by global enduring disorder in the first place. Sure. Um, it's a term that I thought was kind of novel when I coined it in 2018. Then as I was writing the book in 2019 and 2020, it was less novel and more people were saying it. By the time it was published and there was the Ukraine war, it was totally obvious. And now I feel like every op-ed by Thomas Friedman is in some way referencing my concept. <laughs> um, what do I mean? I had an inclination in my experiences working in Washington, D.C. during the Trump period that we were living through a novel historic era and that it wasn't the post-Cold War world anymore. The certitudes of that era of American leadership, of ever-expanding globalization, of the more internationalist candidate in American politics always winning the elections, mm. of a bipartisan approach to certain foreign policy issues, that that had all fallen apart. And that on the opposite side, the challenges we were facing were quite different than those of the Cold War or post-Cold War periods. So a key tenant of the enduring disorder is the idea that there are powers in the world who don't propose an alternative order. They are just happy to disorder the world. So as mm -hmm. a contrast, the very simple one is to contrast Stalin with Putin. Both adversaries, both very evil and dynamic and genocidal and all that. But Stalin, he had an order in a box. Read your mm -hmm. Lenin, read your Marx, do this, kill your dissidents, adopt these economic reforms, accept our Soviet advisors, and call yourself a socialist people's republic. And mm. any place from Cuba to Zaire to Ukraine could accept this. You, you like, 
you sign up and then in a shipping container, it says, join the Soviet system, do this, 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 this. Mm. Putin, mm. there is no Putinist economics. There is no, oh, I want to conquer Ukraine and then they are going to ideologically adopt the Putinist method of governance. Orban is a Putin ally, but he doesn't follow a Putin system. Putin was happy to promote Trump, but he doesn't have him do Putinist ideological mm. or economic behaviors. Putin is just happy for there to be a lot of different disorder and different disordering and neo-populist movements, but he doesn't care that they're part of a system. It is just about promoting disorder. So what I was postulating mm. before the war in Ukraine even started was that many actors like Orban, Trump, Putin, to some extent, Boris Johnson, but definitely Brexit as a phenomenon, they don't mm. propose an alternative order. They just propose an alternative disorder. And that this is yeah, novel okay. to our historic period, because in the Cold War, it was a struggle between two kinds of order. Even World War II, even the Napoleonic Wars, there were struggles between different orders, usually a older or reactionary order and a new and sometimes totalitarian order. But the orders were fighting each other. I don't look at even China as an ordering power. I look at them as a disordering power. Certainly Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, these are disorderers. There's no Hamas plan for governance of Israel. They don't plan to win and impose a new order. They certainly didn't have a system in place on October 7th when they broke through. They just had a rampage. You know what I mean? So we mm. need to contextualize that this historic period is unique in that the forces of order don't work together as well as they used to. The, you know, the UN and, and, and EU and stuff don't work very well anymore. And then our opponents don't have an alternative order. So that's like the first mm. bit of my concept. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, that, that, interesting on so many levels because, uh, you know, if, if I was to push back, I could perhaps even say that aren't they maybe just reordering rather than disordering? So so trying to reorder the, uh, you know, global order uh, or the Pax Americana as we've come to know it uh, since World War II. Is that perhaps what they're trying to do rather than, merely creating disorder because the even disorder one would assume have to have some goal or an end state so even if we use someone like Hamas uh, you know an absolutely uh, absolute agent of disorder especially right now uh, but there is an end state to that disorder whether it's you know as their charter states the extermination or elimination of Israel as as, as an entity um, you know between the river and the sea uh, or something else, or whether it's the Islamification or the, uh, you know, jihadist uh, uh, kind of worldview. Um, I don't know if that, yeah. I think you're giving them yeah, too much credit. And I can't prove it, mm -hmm. but I would even say that the difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that Al-Qaeda, they have a legitimate order, whether it's Sharia law or certain visions of like mm. regime change, particularly in Saudi Arabia. And then ISIS embraced mm -hmm. violence for violence's sake. They were so brutal in Libya, particularly in Darna and then Sirt, that the local inhabitants just kicked them out. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't even mm. functional as an order in and of itself. So mm. again, what I'm saying on this point is not provable. And the objections slash uh, challenges that you raise are very, very valid and I embrace them. All I'm postulating is for intelligent people like yourself or listeners in the Australian defense establishment to th think about this as a lens because 
There's no one way of looking at the world. Is it capitalist versus communist? Is it authoritarian Mm. versus democratic? No, those things are partially true. Is it right versus left? Is it woke versus traditional? I am proposing another lens of orderers against disorderers. And this is not exclusively Mm. the lens that you should look at the world, but it isn't something that you shouldn't think about. It should be one of the 10 things to think about. And I thought that I made a kind of novel contribution in that, I'm trying to coin the post-Cold War period as having this as a very salient dynamic. There were orderers and disorderers in the Habsburgs. There were orderers and disorderers in the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia. So this is not new, but it may be slightly more salient since the invasion of Iraq and then the Arab Spring and then the fact that Obama... And then Trump more so began to withdraw from American overseas engagements. So, yeah, I see a trajectory where this Mm. is a more salient dynamic than it had been previously. That's great. And it's it's perhaps even an extension to what we talked about in our first uh, chat, because we did talk about the the preeminence of U.S. power in the world. And and for those interested, I really recommend that uh, episode. But maybe it's a good segue towards what we're seeing now in in the Middle East, because I suspect... Uh, you you can also draw a, a, a link uh, between that American withdrawal from the region and beyond uh, to perhaps what we're seeing uh, happen uh, in, in, in Israel and Palestine at the moment. Well, when there was American hegemony in the Middle East, it was not used wisely to try to solve the Israel-Palestine question. It promoted some of the more grandiose territorial ambitions of the Israelis, unfortunately, and it did not curb some of the more hateful, anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, and frankly, conspiratorially anti-colonial ambitions of certain Arab actors. So that American hegemony was wasted. You know, we let mm. we let our allies, be they Arab allies or Israeli allies, you know, go to their extremes. Um, I think one president, if he had been in charge for 20 or 30 more years, would have solved it, and that's Bill Clinton. If Bill Clinton had become dictator for life, and particularly if Rabin was not assassinated, we probably would have solved this problem. But other than that, the American presidents have mostly just let the worst impulses of their allies reign. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, then how does, to, to maybe boil down more specifically to the current conflict, how does the current, or how is the current conflict a manifestation of the enduring disorder. Great, Maz. I believe that it is a manifestation because another principle of the enduring disorder, which we didn't have time to get to heretofore, is that conflicts that appear different in kind are actually interrelated. So climate change and the war in Ukraine are connected and tax havens Mm -hmm. and Putin's use of cyber misinformation to manipulate our elections are connected. Unfortunately, Mm. in the Israel-Palestine conflict, the phenomenon of decentralization of violence, upscaling of the kind of technologies that lesser powers can have, and Mm. misinformation and Twitter wars and all of that connects the Israel-Palestine issue to all of these other conflicts, to Ukraine, to, to Trump, to Brexit. It's actually all connected. And I have to say, as someone from New York who has been 
dealing with the 9-11 and then the Israel-Palestine and then being in Syria and Iraq, when I woke up on October 7th, I knew it was bad, but I did not grasp the absurdity of what people would be shouting on the streets in London in their protest marches. And then the craziness of what Ben Gavir and Israeli settlers and settler violence would be. This is actually so much worse than the 9-11. Why? Because the very nature of the enduring disorder and the way in which misinformation and just the crazy polarization of our identity-based debates play out online makes it worse. If the 9-11 had happened 20 years later, it probably would have been the Mm. same. There'd be the same conspiracy theories and blah, 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 blah. But the 9-11 happened in a simpler time. So I feel like it didn't have the ability to have all these enduring disorder media elements as well as interconnection with other conflicts. So another principle of the enduring disorder is that the West's ability to work with our allies is diminished based on a lack of attention and a lack of people giving a shit. And what do you know? As soon as there's this war in Gaza, the Speaker of the House is like, oh, we're not going to give money to Ukraine. People don't care about that anymore. And what do you know? Ukraine is off the headlines. And we're going to actually end up giving them less arms because we're giving some of them, those arms to Israel. That's really dumb. The Israelis have enough arms. The problem with their conflict is not that they don't have like enough howitzers or of artillery pieces. Mm. I think that they need a lot of support and they deserve support, but they certainly don't need more bombs and we shouldn't be giving them to them. But the enduring Mm. disorder Mm. is that all this shit is connected. It's all jammed up in one. It's what in Hebrew is called a balagan. And in Arabic, unfortunately, the term fauda, because of the TV series, has acquired a bad connotation Mm. here. But it's uh, mukhlatbat. Inchilat ma'abad. To give some Arabic, everything Mm. is mixed up together. And that's another mm, phenomenon mm. of the enduring disorder. And we see that in Israel-Gaza. Right. So how is then, which aspects of Israel-Gaza are then collect, connected to the world? I mean, of course, uh, it, it's Iran. You know, most commentators and pundits are making that obvious link. Uh, but perhaps less obvious is the link to Russia, uh, you know, or how what strings and levers Russia's pulling in the region. Uh, so perhaps it, you, can, you can explore some of those uh, kind of strands that link sure. this very very tiny speck uh, on the globe, you know that's that's heavily contested to what we what we're seeing play out in geopolitics or the on the on the global chessboard. Well, let's talk about it first on merely the geostrategic level that you mentioned. Then let's go to the media and discourse in the level, mm-hmm. and. So to start with the first level, it's not impossible that Hamas received training from Russia or coordinated with the Russians. There was a degree of sophistication in their operation plans from communications jamming to flying over the, you know, Gaza barrier Mm. fence. And now, of course, I'm not doing this colonialist condescending thing of saying, oh, well, Arabs couldn't have coordinated such a sophisticated operation. No, of course they could have. Of course they could have. And they didn't even need Iranian help. But we we know that Hamas operatives were in Moscow and were meeting with Lavrov in March of this year. And we also know that there have been a connection between Russian intelligence and Hamas through Iran. I'm happy to send you Jonathan Weiner's article in Middle East Institute of yesterday, where he speculates Mm. about intelligence sharing through Russia. And I, I, 
I really admire Jonathan Weiner as a mentor. And he's someone who would know, having been special envoy for organized crime under Clinton and then special envoy to Libya under Obama, where he was dealing mm. with the Russians. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. In terms of the connection of these things, whether or not they directed or helped plan it, let's say that the Iranians are honest. They were surprised. And then they're like, mm. oh, my God, you did too much. We just wanted you to do a little less. That doesn't matter, really. They are elements of disorder, the Iranians and the Russians, and they say that the Zionist entity this, and you need to wipe it off the map, and you need to whatever. And therefore, they have been cheerleaders for this. Even if they did not facilitate this exact attack, the Iranians facilitated an environment where attacks like this can happen and get applauded in the broader extremist Islamist community, both Shia and Sunni. So Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't matter if they gave that tactical help, but maybe they did, right? On this geostrategic level, let's say that they didn't know about it, Putin is licking his chops. Mm. He was potentially on the verge of losing. And now it seems, particularly if Biden doesn't win the election, he's going to ride out the war as a stalemate and he will have won. And a large Mm. part of that Mm. is because this has so distorted the globe and it really pits a lot of Democrats against each other, just as it does the labor left. I mean, Keir Starmer has a different position than a lot of the backbench. Corbynistas and Starmerites are just at each other's throats because you can divide even the white Christian left between those on the mm. center left who might support certain Israel notions and those who are like, end the war now, cease fire now. Do you know what I mean? The, the Israelis have no right to even attack in Gaza at all. And so this is an issue which so polarizes um, even centrist opinion in Europe, mm. I don't know the Australian debate, but I assume that it's oh, it's yeah, re- the same. yeah reasonably similar. I can't comment, but the left is more divided than the right in most European and North American contexts on this issue, which is perfect because for Putin that divides the one block which was firmly against him. Um, mm. Mm. So yeah, mm. it's 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 geostrategically genius. It's almost so genius that it would be amazing if he hadn't have thought of doing something like this. Mm, um, mm. Now, to get to how it's all connected, I postulate that the Middle East in the period 2011 until 2023 had three blocks. The disorderers, and that's Iran, mm. and Russia counts as an internal power in the Middle East because they essentially occupy Syria, right? So Russia mm. is a Middle Eastern power. But so Iran and Russia and Hezbollah and the Houthis and Yemen and certain Libyan militias and some jihadis and whatever, these are the Mm. disorderers. Sometimes they work together, sometimes they don't, but they just disorder and they're happy to have misinformation and violence and whatever. Then you have the, I'm willing to work with the Muslim Brotherhood, but we're American allies. And so those are the Turks, the Qataris, um, the Western Libyan, what was the GNC, then the GNA, now the GNU, these are connected to various Misratan militias and linked to, um, you know, linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, essentially. And then, of course, Morsi in Egypt for the period of time that he was in Egypt. This is a Muslim Brotherhood linked group. Um, and now you have... The Almanis kind of straddling this camp. They're willing to some extent work with the Brotherhood. 
Then if you pause this, you have the third grouping, which is the American allies who will not under any circumstance work with the Muslim Brotherhood and oppose it as their top regional thing. So the Emirates is at the top of that league tables. Emirati foreign policy since 2011 is about eradicating the Muslim Brotherhood. That's the primary goal of the Emiratis, right? They back the Zintanis in Libya and Haftar just to kill the Muslim Brotherhood like Mm. militias. They spearheaded and funded the coup against Morsi to put Sisi in power. And what does Sisi do? Mm. He puts all these Muslim Brotherhood guys in jail. So you have the Emiratis at the top. Then you have their protégés who are the Saudis, who are more powerful. But it's really important to keep in mind that MBZ is still MBS's mentor. And MBZ kind of has a Mm. fatherly approach to MBS. So the Emiratis, the Saudis. Then you have the Egyptians who are their client. They get paid by the Emiratis and the Saudis. Mm. And so they do that as well. And you have the Israelis. Because during this whole period, there has been Netanyahu dominance. Obviously, Naftali Bennett was prime minister for like two and a half minutes. It barely counts. You've had an uninterrupted period of Netanyahu dominance. And he is no different regionally than the Saudis and the Emiratis, who he he created a peace treaty, essentially, with them, because he supports their regional approach, which is the pure eradication of Muslim Brotherhood-linked groups. So Mm. if we zoom out, the problem with these three groups is... Within the orderers and the American allies, you have two groups which are at war with each other. Those who support and are willing to work with the Muslim Brotherhood and those who oppose it. So Mm. Donald Trump really further exacerbated this by facilitating and exacerbating the blockade of Qatar between 2017 and January 2021. And Trump, of course, was in the pocket of the Saudis. He went to Saudi Arabia. He touched the golden Mm. orb. He visited the Emiratis. He did the Abraham Accords in a way that tried to weaken Qatar, strengthen the Emiratis against the Qataris. He was very happy for this Cold War to be Mm. going on between the Emiratis and the Qataris. And everything else that he did in the Middle East was subordinate to supporting the Emiratis against the Qataris. This is right. okay. That's that's interesting. Uh, it's, oh, it's yeah. not something I've heard before. Talk, contextualized in that sense, we yeah. could talk a whole pot about this. We could talk about the different Washington mm. think tanks, the ones that are funded by the Emiratis and that are Zionist in a certain way, and those that are funded by the Qataris and that they work with the Turks and are pro NATO in another way. This Emirati Qatari mm. issue has become the most important partisan fissure in Washington about how the Middle East is seen and viewed between Democrats and Republicans. But and, and, and so, just on that Emirati Qatar point of difference, what, what is their principal cause of the frictions uh, between those? And, well, and of course, uh, yeah. If sorry, you're but, a yeah, hard right Republican, Trumpian or non-Trumpian, you don't want to work with the Muslim Brotherhood. You want the right. Emiratis to eradicate them. You might support Haftar in Libya. You're certainly happy that the Jordanians crack down on Muslim Brotherhood linked groups, that the Saudis are right. funding an anti-Muslim Brotherhood Islam now. Mm. That's a hard mm-hmm. right both arch-con, neo-con, and Trumpian neo-populist position. If you're a Democrat, Mm. you believe that people in the Islamic world have the right to vote for Muslim Brotherhood parties and that political Islamism is here to stay, and it's going to have a role in the governance and administration of a lot of the Islamic world. So if Morsi was duly elected, he should be allowed to run Egypt, like Obama thought. And Biden Mm. certainly believes that the Muslim Brotherhood, as it exists, is something that we need to work with. And therefore, he's willing to work more with the Qataris, whereas isolating the Qataris was the primary goal 
of the Trump administration throughout the region. He's rather right. than isolating the Iranians, he isolated the Qataris. What I call for is to move from these three camps to two. You have to unite the pro-Muslim Brotherhood and anti-Muslim Brotherhood groupings of American allies, get them on the same page as orderers, and unite them against the disorderers. And I believe that we mm. could use the war in Gaza, we can pivot to the solution, but that we could use the war in Gaza to get to that point. Um, it's going to be a tough, a tough sell, as they say. But if we don't mm. do it, we're divided against ourselves. It's like, remember at the beginning of the Ukraine war, or in the lead up to it, even better, in the lead up to it, the French and the Germans were like, no, no, no. We don't want to give an ultimatum. Olaf Scholz said, no, we will never raise defense spending and we're not going to attack even if they, you know, we're not going to take away Nord Stream 2. And Biden said, no, you have to say that the Nord Stream 2 is off the cards if they continue to mobilize and put the troops on the, you know, the Belarusian border with Ukraine and the Russian border with Ukraine. And Macron went to Moscow and sat at that long table with Putin. And Biden was like, don't do that. That just encourages him. So the West was divided. An Anglo-American camp, which said, he's going to invade. What we need to do is say, if you do this, we're going to hit you so hard. Deterrence. And then the Germans and French were like, no, let's, let's, let's have negotiations. Let's make nice. He's not going to invade. We've had this in the Middle East with other dynamics of having our allies divided against the, themselves. And you can't make coherent policy when your allies are divided amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and, I, and I want to get to that uh, prospect for peace or one of the solutions that you've put forward in, the, in your recent foreign policy article um, uh, in a minute. But just before I assume too much, A, of myself, but also of, uh, of, of our audience, it's the elephant in the room. You keep mentioning the Muslim Brotherhood as the key dividing feature in the Middle East. Can you give me a quick recap sure. on I the, just want to the importance clear. of the- I don't think that the yeah. Muslim Brotherhood is in reality the key dividing feature in the Middle mm-hmm. East. It's rather well, that there has then. been a right-wing Republican and to some extent Tory and Emirati, Saudi, and Israeli view that this is the case. And as a result of this view, since the Arab Spring, people have been terrified that there's going to be Muslim Brotherhood takeovers in places like Syria and Libya. In Libya, it's the reason that we didn't give enough support. And in Syria, it's the reason that we didn't back the Sunni Islamists who were the only ones who might topple Bashar al-Assad. The groups that we worked with, like I don't know, the Syrian Democratic Congress and the this, that, they were so weak because the only people who had any power other than the Kurds, of course, I'm saying other than the Kurds, mm. among Sunni mm. Arabs, the only ones that, that had any power in Syria were different kinds of Islamists. But we were not willing to work with them because of this fear that, oh my God, they're Islamists and that, you know, when the dictator's gone, it's going to be even worse than Morsi. It's going to be a brotherhood-led regime. And so we just haven't been on the same page about this. And Trump because of Jared Kushner's ties to the Emiratis and 666 Fifth Avenue, and let's not even get into it, but there is a multi-decade long connection between the Kushner and Trump organizations and the Emiratis and Emirati money. They were instantly put into this debate and they adopted the Emirati anti-brotherhood position, hook, line, and sinker. And so they have just been pursuing the right wing of the Republican Party and to some extent Boris Johnson. Like, keep in mind, you might have heard of Liz Truss's uh, aide who was 
was a lobbyist for Haftar and a lobbyist for the Emiratis. The Emiratis have penetrated a lot of the, the right. And they pursue this anti-Muslim Brotherhood agenda that we can't work with any grouping in the Middle East mm. who is Sunni and Islamist. I think that's insane because we need to work with all of the American allies together against the real threat, which is the Iranians and the Russians and Hezbollah and the Houthis and Hamas. So that's my view, but I'm a Democrat. Mm. So that's why I see it that mm. way. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, uh, that's, 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 uh, so many strains that we could uh, pick apart there, but I do want to focus on this article that you put out sure. because I thought it was a really poignant article and, and, and you provide some nuance, I think, that's uh, lacking quite often in our discourse about the Middle East uh, writ large, but particularly the current conflict uh, in, between Israel and Hamas. Uh, I think it was, it was titled, uh, Qatar is the key to Middle East peace. So firstly, I think you've set the context for us why you see Qatar as uh, as a unique player in the region, but perhaps explain for us why is Qatar positioned to be to usher in peace and stability and prosperity in the region uh, uh, as you view it. Great. So it's not like the Qataris are going to solve the problem single handedly, but rather mm. that they're like the swing state. You want to win an American election, you need to get either Ohio or Florida. Is Ohio or mm -hmm. Florida more important than California or New York economically? No, obviously not. It's just that's the swing state. So mm -hmm. Qatar, to my mind, and Turkey to a lesser extent, but the Qataris are the ones who are important in this conflict. They have the relationships with Iran, with Hamas, with the Taliban, with Russia, with the Ukrainians, and with Israel and with America and with NATO. They are the swing player. That's why all of the hostage releases, yes, there is some Egyptian role, but all the discussions are happening in Qatar. The Qataris are the ones delivering the hostages. Make no mistake about it. They allow, they allow the Mossad chief to fly there and they mm. parlay as honest brokers between the Mossad and Hamas. Who else can do that? The Emiratis can't do that. CIA can't do that. Even the Chinese can't do that. The Qataris have these relationships. The Qataris released the kidnapped Ukrainian boys that the Russians have, you know, kidnapped in mm -hmm. Donbass. The Qataris got the American dual nationals out of Iran in exchange for our releasing the Iranian prisoners. They are the swing player in the Middle Eastern system. Unfortunately, mm. in the past, particularly under the former emir, they had a legacy of promoting not just Muslim Brotherhood link groups, but jihadi link groups. Not so great. And they were not necessarily a great player in Libya. It's kind of embarrassing. They supported a lot of jihadi linked and, and very extremist militias. But I blame that on the current emir's father. And even though the current emir has been in power since 2013, he didn't really find his feet for a while because he was surrounded by all of his father's advisors. His father abdicated rather than died. And that's a very difficult position to, you know, if you're running one of these Gulf sheikhdoms, mm. to mm. just like switch policy one minute to the next, you know, because your dad could replace you or, you know, the, his advisors, mm. you know, mm. throw you in the, the, the Red Sea or whatever. <laughs> but if you look at it, there is a trend that If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, 
and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.